A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. So trauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Lusak. Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites, to another episode. This is Yehuda Geberer. And before I get to what we're going to talk a little bit about today, just wanted to make a correction from a previous episode um, in honor of the what was then the upcoming yard site of the Satmarov, and which is actually today. Um, the the, um, uh, the I mentioned that the origins of the name where the Satmarov was. Rav, and what he came to be known by as Satmar, was the Romanian word Satu Mary, and I incorrectly asserted that um, it came from St. Mary, which I thought was funny. Um, apparently it's an urban legend, which makes it even funnier, that I went ahead and uh, uh, preserved it and spread it, unfortunately, which is something I don't want to do. So uh, thank God for the loyal listeners of Jewish History Soundbites who quickly pointed out this error, and it actually means large village in Romanian. It has nothing to do with any saint or Mary or anything else. I just wanted to put that out on the table. But today there's another yard site. Famously, it's the the Satmarov uh, gets most of the headlines for taking Chavav of as the yard site. But there was another person who was also one of the great uh, rabbinic personalities of the 20th century, and he was a person who was in the right place at the right time, and that's um, really what made him uh, fame, where he stepped up to the plate, and that was a fellow by the name of Reb Meir Ashkenazi, a Lubavitcher chassid, who was the Rav in Shanghai. He was the rabbi of the Jewish community of Shanghai, the Russian Jewish community of Shanghai, for 23 years, from 1926 to 1949, and of course those years overlap with the time that during the war many thousands of refugees ended up in Shanghai and he came to play a central role. This is someone who became a rabbi of this far-flung Jewish community that was really out of town. In a certain way, he's one of the first shlichim, uh, not by his not by, not, it's just how circumstances made, made it. In the 1920s, he ends up being becoming the rabbi of this 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 uh, ultimate 
uh, end of the world community. And the way this uh, this comes to happen is that he, like everyone else's biography, starts off which is in a very standard way for the end of the uh, 19th century of his time. He grows up in the Russian Empire in the Pale of Settlement, like most Russian Jews, in a Chesidisha home, in a Lubavitcher home. And he goes to learn in the prestigious Taimchei Tmimim Yeshiva, which is an amazing story in itself. The Rashab, fifth Rebbe of Chabad, and he starts Taimchei Tmimim, what Taimchei Tmimim was all about. He learns there for not a very long period of time, I think about a year, year and a half. And he comes from a rabbinic family, and because of the travails of World War One. He ends up going into exile, also like many people. Now, exile can mean all kinds of places. And he goes with his family into the Russian interior. And the Russian interior is vast. It's endless. It goes and goes and goes and goes. It simply doesn't end. It's a massive country. And he eventually finds himself in the at the end of it, at the last place in Russia that there is to be, the port city of Lavidovostok. And which is on the Sea of Japan. It's the gateway to the Far East uh, from Russia. And also later became famous as the point where the Polish ref- Jewish refugees went left Russia from Vladivostok to Japan and then later to Shanghai during the war. So he, Rabbi Ashkenazi, many, many years earlier, we're talking about during World War I, he ends up in Vladivostok. And he gets appointed the Rav, his first position as Rav. He gets married to another old story, to another, to a girl from another strange Jewish community in the Far East, in, in China, in Man, Manch, Manchuria, in China. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, Harbin, another story of a Jewish community in the Far East. And he settles in Vladivostok and, and becomes the rabbi there. And as the rabbi there of the Russian Jewish community, it's a community of exiles, especially after the Russian Revolution. Jews in the Russian Empire, former Russian Empire now are running all over uh, World War I and the revolution and the subsequent civil war and pogroms really caused a major upheaval in Jewish life in Russia. And uh, refugees ended up everywhere. So he's the rabbi in Vladivostok. Interestingly enough, in the last days of the Russian Empire, he hid in his house, a communist Jewish revolutionary. And his wife said, you're risking your life hiding him. The czarist police are looking for these communist revolutionaries. Not only that, but communist revolutionaries led a very vastly different Jewish lifestyle than a Lubavitcher chassid who was the rav of a community. And uh, why are you hiding him? And he decided to hide him anyway. He said, a Jew is a Jew. And this really represented who he was uh, in later times. Uh, Jews of all stripes and of all different kinds were the recipients of his kindness, of his leadership, of his fatherliness, of his care. And um, legend has it that this revolutionary eventually reached a position of power and was able to help out uh, Rabbi Meir Ashkenazi and his family. Although, like I said, it's, it's, it's legend has it. In any event... Um, he remains the Rav of Lavidovostok for about seven-something years. But now it's communist Russia, and the communists, uh, the Soviet Union, 
reaches everywhere in the in Russia, everywhere in the Soviet Union, including areas like Vladivostok, and the Jewish life becomes quite unsustainable uh, there, and he has to leave. He planned on going to the United States. There was a position in Boston that he was seeking, and he ends up instead in Shanghai. There's also different versions of how he ended up in Shanghai. Was it that the Jewish community there invited him? Was that that he got stuck there? There's different versions. But in any event, in 1926, he ends up in the Jewish community of Shanghai. And I want to say a word about the background of the Jewish community in Shanghai, because in too many of the tours that I lead, the, and the story of Shanghai, of the Mir, of, of, of World War II, it, it gets, gets raised in many of the tours we go. If it's, if it's to Belarus, then we end up talking about it when we're in the Mir. If it's in Lithuania, then we end up talking about it when... Uh, when we're in Kovna, in the house where Sugihara distributed the visas, always a highlight of our tours is when to go to the actual Japanese consul uh, house, which is now a museum where he distributed the uh, the visas, the transit visas through Japan, and uh, made the Shanghai miracle possible. So, and in many frameworks, also sometimes comes up in Poland and other countries also about the story of Shanghai, and I always get this. Uh, surprising question, especially from Yeshiva guys, about what do you mean there were people in Shanghai, Jews in the Mir besides for the Mir Yeshiva? I thought it was the Mir Yeshiva that got saved in Shanghai. So just a little bit of a background in uh, and what was the Jewish community like in Shanghai that the Mir Yeshiva during the war years was a tiny, tiny fraction of. Um, the Jewish community in Shanghai goes back to the 18th century where Sephardi Jews originating from Baghdad in Iraq, and from Spanish exiles, actually, from uh, the original expulsion, they end up in India, Calcutta, in, in uh, pronounce that right too, and, uh, and other cities in India, which was rising as centers of commerce because India was a major, uh, played a major role in the British Empire for over 300 years. The story of the British Empire and uh, and the economy of the British Empire, and of course where there's commerce, the Jews end up, and Jews originating from Iraq and other places end up in India. Now, these India-based Jews follow the trade routes, which led them to Shanghai. Now Shanghai, now China itself during the last uh, dynasty, the Ming, the Ming dynasty, was. Uh, under more and more influence and uh, meddling from the European powers. Don't forget that the 19th century is the era of imperialism, when the great empires of the world are trying to carve up Africa and Asia for themselves. And in, in a very racist sense, they see themselves as, as, uh, as uh, deserving and of, uh, of a higher, uh, uh, you know, uh, to, to submit all the other countries to their rule. And is definitely the way that England looked at it. And there's the Boxer Rebellion that tries to remove European influence from China at the end of the 19th century. And the Boxer Rebellion is crushed by a, a, an alliance of European powers. And that causes there to be even more influence of Europe in China. And I don't want to go into the whole history of the Chinese Empire and its disintegration in the early 20th century at this point. But what, it, what happens is is that following the trade routes and the Europeans coming to China are the J rich Jews from originally from Baghdad and from India 
to Shanghai, and they form the nucleus of the Jewish community. They're very wealthy, they're major businessmen, they're major in commerce, and they're British. They're British subjects from India, and now in Shanghai, they're, they're the elite of the, of the town, the rich of the town, the cultured, and of course, they're far from Jewish centers. They start to assimilate pretty quickly, um, this Sephardi community. Many of them intermarry. Um, they, they're very wealthy, they're very prestigious, but they're very far at the same, for the most part. There is rabbis that they bring in, there is a minimal Jewish and traditional life, but not much. That's the first community um, in Shanghai. The second one is related to Rav Meir Ashkenazi, the Russian Jews who come in the early, in the late, late, late 1800s and early 1900s because of the pogroms. We know that the great emigration from the, of the Jews of the Russian Empire, starting from 1881 and on, made a mass emigration, mass exodus of Jews from the Russian Empire. And Jews literally spread all over the world, um, mostly to the United States, but they came everywhere. So some of them came to China, some of them came to Shanghai. And especially after the Kishinev program in 1903, 1905 revolution, and of course World War One, the upheavals of World War One, the Russian Revolution, Jews running now from the communists, first from the Civil War and then from the Soviet Union, and the Russian Jewish community grows by leaps and bounds in Shanghai. There's thousands of Jews, Russian Jews, also many of them assimilated or assimilate quickly. Some of them are staying strong, Hasidim, especially Lubavitcher Hasidim, um, and there's a now a traditional Jewish community, and that's why they hire a Meir Ashkenazi to be their Rav. He's the first real Rav in Shanghai, it's 1926, and there's this large burgeoning Jewish community, most of it secular and, and on its way to assimilation, but a core of, of a traditional Jewish community as well. And then there's the third and fourth stages of the Jewish community there, um, which begins in the 1930s, a few years after Meir Ashkenazi becomes the rabbi, to of what he thinks is a far-flung Jewish community cut off from the rest of the Jewish world. And then things start to change. In 1933, Hitler comes to power, and Jews of Germany and Austria are looking for places to leave anywhere uh, from around the world, anywhere, anywhere that would take them in especially after Kristallnacht in 1938, and especially Austrian Jews, who the Chinese consul in Vienna is actually giving them visas to be able to make it to China. So thousands and thousands of German-speaking Jews, possibly even in the tens of thousands, it's an enormous Jewish community of exiles, of refugees, mainly penniless refugees, end up in Shanghai, in the 1930s, especially in 1938-1939, following Kristallnacht, mainly from Austria, some from Germany, and of course Austria and German Jewry are mainly non-traditional Jews, some of them assimilated, um, and, and Romer Ashkenazi now uh, not only has to care for his own community, and he of course had built very strong ties with the Sephardi community, there as well, so there are his two communities he's affiliated with, but now there's a refugee community of German and Austrian Jews, mostly assimilated, he cares for their physical needs, again, like I said, they were penniless, and their spiritual needs, he tries to bring them closer to Yiddishkeit, not only that, 
but this was mostly internal support at this point. The wealthy Svarti Jews and of course and some of the Russian Jews had become well established in business during this time in Shanghai, and they were able to sustain their um, their uh, their their newly arrived uh, refugees from Germany and Austria. The fourth and final Jewish community that arrives in Shanghai is the Polish and Lithuanian Jewish refugees that come through Japan, and that's only in mid-1941, a couple of years later. And, and that's also several thousand Polish and Lithuanian Jews, also of all stripes, religious, secular, yeshiva guys, Hasidim, all types. And they had come mainly through the Japanese Sugihara miracle visa, so-called miracle visas, and the and the um, and the and which is a story in itself, and the and they end up in Shanghai in in the summer of 1941, and among that group is the Mir Yeshiva. So they come. There are 300 uh, Talmidim of the Mir Yeshiva that come with several thousand Polish and Lithuanian Jewish refugees in the summer of 1941, and they join these first three communities. And now Rameir Ashkenazi has to oversee the whole business here in Shanghai. And he, as a, as a real natural leader and a great lover of the Jewish people, tremendous uh, projected, uh, just total dedication to the cause, um, helping everyone, like I said, in both a physical and spiritual sense throughout those terrible years, um, where where they had these this influx of refugees and they had to deal with the situation, especially after the United States declared war in Japan and the Sephardi uh, rich Jews now all became enemy subjects because England declared war in Japan along with the United States and these Sephardi Jews were British and many of their assets were seized. Some of them were even arrested and that was the cutoff of one of the main sources of uh, of funding for for the for the help was from the internal help that the that these people uh, were able to use for the refugees and Rameer Ashkenazi stood at the forefront of this effort and he balanced his responsibilities as the rabbi of the Russian Jewish community to doing his extra responsibilities as helping and sustaining the new arrived refugees. He starts a Hasidish yeshiva for Hasidish Polish refugees called Yeshivas Mizrach Harachoik, the Yeshiva of the Far East. And uh, he takes responsibility for the two small Hasidish Yeshivas, um, along with the Amshan of Rebbe, the small branch of Yeshivas Chachme Lublin, the small branch of Yeshivas Taimchei Tamimim of Chabad. And, um, and he has close connections with the Chaim Shemlevitz and the Mir Yeshiva, a point of, of uh, contention and of and today, a sore point that people like to discuss, especially on the blogs, with a lot of emotion and very little facts, is the the uh, how they distributed funds in Shanghai. There was limited funds, very often sent by the Vat Hatzalah, sometimes sent um, by other organizations, the joint, depending when, depending what point in the war. And um, how were those funds distributed? Who received them? Were they received directly by Rameir Ashkenazi, who very often risked his life because he was receiving funds from America, and the Japanese government was keeping a close eye on who was receiving funds from enemy territory, and he literally risked his life to pick up and distribute these to the refugees. Was Reb Chaim Shmulevitz receiving the funds? Reb Shmulevitz 
My Rebbe in the Mir Yeshiva told me that his father and Rameir Ashkenazi and the Yamshin of a Rebbe were very close during the war. They each had their respective responsibilities to their communities. Yamshin of a Rebbe to the refugees, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz to the Yeshiva guys, and Rameir Ashkenazi to the locals. They worked together and they remained close after the war. And Abifal told me that till today he has a close relationship. Until today he was lifter a few years ago, but that he maintained at the time a close uh, relationship with the Ashkenazis, who their grandchild, his grandchild and great grandchild now is a rabbi in Kfar Chabad in Eretz Yisrael, as long as well as the Yamshin of a Rebbe's family. So these uh, the I, the exact. Uh, the exact details of all the the um, the um, how the money was distributed. Of course, there's sometimes misunderstandings, and of course, there was tension with the limited funds that there was and who collected them and how they were distributed. But overall, we're dealing with great people, and the one who's shown out of this whole story uh, much more than all the people speaking about the story today is Rameir Ashkenazi, who as a true leader. And a true father to his people, he he took care of all, including his own community and the refugees, taking care of spiritual and physical needs, whether it was taking care of the basic Yiddishkeit needs for estranged Austrian Jews from Yiddishkeit, or it was taking care of the Mir Yeshiva's needs. And he was Masada Kedushin at many of the boys in the Mir's Chasana's uh, weddings, and he wrote Smicha, to some Bachram from the Mir, if I heard them, he was the Rav, he wrote smicha, I even saw a smicha that he wrote in English, which was the main language used in Shanghai, a smicha that he wrote in English to a Bachram from the Mir Yeshiva to be able to pass in Shilas. He uh, stays on in Shanghai, after all the refugees leave after the war, he stays, he stays till the end, um, with his community, dwindling community, not only the refugees leave, most Jews left, especially after the economy goes bad, and it becomes difficult to maintain religious life because the Chinese Civil War resumed after the end of World War II, and Mao Zedong and his communists uh, were able to oust Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists to Taiwan, and therefore China became communist. And the economy goes bad, religion becomes persecuted, and the Chinese, the Shanghai Jewish community essentially disappears. And in 1949. Rameer Ashkenazi, pretty much one of the last ones left there, seeing that his rabbinical duties and responsibilities have come to an end, moves to the United States, and he moves to Crown Heights near the Rebbe the Rayats, and um, later on the the last Rebbe, Rebbe Nachum Mendel, the, uh, in Crown Heights, where he lived his final years, and he's buried there in Montefiore, not far from the oil, or as in Chabad they say, the ale, of the Rebbe's um, um, till today. And, and um, that's a little bit uh, of the story of Rameir Ashkenazi. This was Yehuda Geberer of Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course trips and tours to see and hear about these people and places. Subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode of the podcast. And we'll end off with one last segment of Geb's Words, where we got a bunch of new corrections on words that I mispronounced. One was anomaly, which I had mispronounced.
I don't even remember how I mispronounced it, but it's the correct way is anomaly. And then we had a hotshot lawyer from Manhattan who's a dedicated and loyal listener to Jewish history soundbites. He submitted two corrections, triumphant and seminal, not triumphant and seminal. So thank you there for those corrections as well. And of course, you could follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.